there, friends, and welcome to episode 216 of Just the Zoo of Us. This week, I am joined by a fish biologist at the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory to talk about the gentle giants that have been swimming up and down our rivers since the dinosaur age. We discuss being a fish lawyer, ancient genetics, scales, whiskers, caviar, whoosh tubes, and more. Just the Zoo of Us presents Sturgeon with Brenda Prachel. This is Ellen Weatherford. I'm here with Just the Zoo of Us, your favorite animal review podcast. I'm so excited this week to be talking to a brand new friend. This is Brenda Prachel. Say hi, Brenda. Hi, Ellen. How are you? I am great. Brenda, what are your pronouns real quick? She and her. Thank you so much. And I'm excited to learn more about the animal that we're learning about today because I have had an opportunity to see them up close recently where I'm at. So I'm really excited to learn more about them. But before we talk about these cool animals... Let's talk about you. Brenda, tell me a little bit about the work that you do with our freshwater friends. I am a scientist at Pacific Northwest National Lab. It's a lab that's ran by the Department of Energy. So pretty much everything we do has some sort of an intersection with energy in some way. You know, being a fish person, we do a lot of work with hydropower and thinking about things like fish passageways over dams. Um, How do we solve those kind of conservation problems? How do we deal with energy contamination that ends up in rivers? Legacy contamination also because the national labs kind of have their start um, in the Manhattan Project when they built the atomic bomb. So cleaning up that sort of waste. Hold on. (laughs) Hold on. (laughs) That was very, very interesting what you said. You like glossed over like it was nothing. (laughs) I'm a labbie. (laughs) Because it reminded me a little bit of that episode in The Simpsons where all the fish in the lake are like sprouting a million eyes eyes. is that like blinky (laughs) yeah is that you (laughs) i mean we would we would find blinky and identify him and then you know probably do a special study on him and his friends making sure that water is you know finding out what's in the water that's maybe causing it and then helping to identify how to remediate it But those are long term issues, you know, things like um, mercury contamination, you know, mercury was really central to making the fuel for the atomic bomb. And so mercury in freshwater systems accumulates in fish. And then when we eat the fish, we can have mercury contamination, mercury poisoning. Oh, wow. Yep. I had heard of that. I had heard of mercury being in fish. I didn't know it went back to the Manhattan Project. That's crazy. Well, it doesn't always. I mean, in our case, like here in Tennessee, we have, you know, where the Oak Ridge National Lab is, there is a lot of mercury that's in the environment. Generally, though, mercury is atmospherically deposited. And so it will get in the jet stream. It will get up in the the air currents and you'll find it everywhere. Um, It's in plants. And so like if they flood a a reservoir, when they build a dam, for instance, there's little bits of mercury in all those plants. And as the water rises, those plants will decompose as they're submerged and mercury will be liberated in the environment. And that's how fish will ultimately get it. It goes from the microbes to the to the bugs, to the fish, to the bigger fish and then to us. 
Oh, see, when you think about things like water levels rising and changing, it wouldn't occur to most people to think about things like the chemicals that are getting kicked up. Yeah. Right. You might only think about like, where's the water? How deep is it? That should be all all we need to think about. Right. Yep. But it's fascinating that there's like so much more to it than just how much water is here. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and even, you know, thinking about where you want to site like a chemical plant or you want to site something that may have some contamination associated with it, things that you don't want in your water. A lot of times they are place near water because of shipping, if they have barge traffic. Um, a lot of railways are near water because of that interface with barges and trains. Oh, that makes sense. Because the big stuff, it's right there. Yep. Or shipping ports in the ocean, those sorts of things like sea level rise, floods, all of those things can cause problems. Or like for nuclear plants too, for instance, you'll see those by rivers in a lot of cases because they need to take water to for their cooling system. It makes sense now that you say it. It's just obviously not the sort of thing that a normie like me... <laughs> A non-lab scientist. (laughs) (laughs) But that's really cool that I think that it sounds like you're kind of like the advocate for the fish. Yes. Yes. I like that. Like a fish lawyer. (laughs) A fish lobbyist. (laughs) You walk into like a courtroom wheeling like a fish tank. (laughs) (laughs) Your honor, my client. (laughs) (laughs) May my client approach the bench. (laughs) Exactly. Brenda Prachel, <laughs> fish lawyer. <laughs> well, people, you know, that might be going into a career like that, like in policy or something like that, might be interested to hear, yeah. right? That, that is a, a cool intersection between uh, having a passion for nature and wildlife and getting into the, sort of the nitty gritty of policy. I, you know, I never knew that when I was a kid, I never knew that what I do now was a thing to do. Right. And especially like the policy part, gosh, I never would have thought about that. And I work with lawyers all the time. I work with so much intersection with science and nature um, that you don't have to be a scientist. If you like the nature part and you the science part is tricky or it's not your favorite, there's lots of other ways to engage in that. For sure. How did you get into the work that you do? Like, were, were you an animal kid? Yes, I was an animal kid. I would play, I mean, there's a few ways I would say. Um, one is that my parents owned a motel and it was like that show Shit's Creek. It was like that. That's where I grew up. Oh, and yeah. The, yep. The motel <laughs> office was a room in our house. And um, it's, you know, in a town right along the Missouri River. So rivers were there. That was part of we'd go boating, we'd go hang out by the river. But in our back parking lot for the motel, there was, you know, divots in the asphalt and the water would always create this like really intricate system of what was like a river and reservoir. And I would sit back there like playing like Army Corps of Engineers building dams with sticks and <laughs> whatnot. What a premonition, right? I know. Like- <laughs> I know. Uh, no, what like, a glimpse into the I future. Know. Yeah, and I know I, if I would have known that like doing that was a job, I don't know that I would be working with fish. But um, <laughs> my grandparents also had a cabin up in Minnesota at a little lake in the headwaters of the Des Moines River, which is a pretty important uh, river in the Midwest for fish. And up there, we'd go fishing all the time. I went fishing to see fish, not because I wanted to catch the biggest fish or whatever. I just like to see fish. But then when I found out that You know, you can go like if you work for a state agency or some entity that's sampling fish, you go out with big nets and you can see a whole lot of fish, way more fish than you would ever be able to catch. And so that's how I got hooked, sort of pun intended. And to be a fish person. <laughs> uh, it sounds like the fish weren't the only one getting hooked. We're all, we're all hooked, yeah. <laughs> now, 
you've told me about some really fascinating fish that you've gotten to work with, uh, one of which is the focus of our episode today, but you've gotten a chance to look at some really amazing fish too. I wanted you to kind of introduce us a little bit to the sort of huge fish that you've gotten a chance to work with. Yeah. So today I'm going to talk about sturgeon. Sturgeon isn't a single species. It's a group of 28 species. There's 27 that are just sturgeon. And then there's one closely related group called paddlefish. And they have a lot of similar characteristics to to sturgeon. They're pretty closely related. I didn't know that. I didn't realize that they were like yeah. cousins like that. Yeah, they're in the same order. So if you think the taxonomic hierarchy, they're both in the same order. And they're just in different families. Very different energies. They do. But you know... Um, <laughs> I've done a lot of work in hydropower systems and below hydropower dams. And one of the dams I worked below had a lot of paddlefish there, but they would come through the dam and they'd get their, they've got a big rostrum, a big paddle on their, on their front of their face. And that gets taken off. They look a lot like sturgeon. You can really see the similarities then. I feel like it's not supposed to come off. No, no, it's pretty permanently (laughs) stuck on there. I feel like that's not an ideal circumstance. No, not at all. But they're closely related enough that I think it was last, maybe it was just, maybe it was 2020. They didn't mean to do it, but they accidentally hybridized um, a sturgeon what? and a paddlefish. No. Pretty crazy. What? Yeah. Was the like offspring like okay? Yeah, I don't, th- I don't they didn't, are not sure that it could reproduce, probably not. But sturgeon, they have so many copies of chromosomes throughout their evolutionary history. There's been several different events where they've replicated their whole genome and then kept it within themselves. So rather than like we have two copies of all of our chromosomes and their ancestor most certainly had two copies of their chromosome. But at some point they doubled that. And then at another point, they doubled that. And then at another point, they doubled that again. So there's some sturgeon oh species gosh. that have like six what we say 16N, like we're 2N, we have two copies, they have 16 copies of of all their... But in doing that, you end up with this full suite of traits and genes that can be expressed. And so they were in the lab trying to make fish that were able to be reproduced by just the mom and so have no males. (gasps) And I wasn't quite clear on the rationale on this. Um, I'd have to read the paper more closely, but they introduced sperm from a different fish uh, a different sturgeon species, and they actually made babies. I love that. They're yeah. like, it don't matter. Throw no. some paddlefish in there. Yeah. Who cares? <laughs> Throw some sturgeon. I don't know. Throw it in the soup. It's yeah. all good. It's all good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, for people who are maybe unfamiliar with what a sturgeon is, uh, is this a freshwater fish? A saltwater fish? Like, where are you going to find one of these? Yeah. So sturgeon, you can find in both places. Most of the species of sturgeon are what we say are anadromous. And they're able to move between fresh and salt water during different parts of their life. They'll hatch in fresh water in rivers, and then they'll drift out to the ocean and live their juvenile life and get kind of fat and happy. And then they'll uh, move back <laughs> in when it's maybe time to spawn and kind of repeat the life cycle over again. In the U.S., there's lake sturgeon, shovelnose sturgeon, palace sturgeon, which are endangered, and Alabama sturgeon, which I think are also endangered. But those four species are, are the ones that I can think of that are like obligate freshwater they probably could tolerate some little bits of salt water and surely like looking at their evolutionary history, they would have had to have. But now they're just, we find them in, except for the Alabama sturgeon that we just find kind of down in Alabama in that area. Um, the other three species we'll find in the Mississippi drainage and the lake sturgeon will also find in the Great Lakes. And I feel like when you see one, you know it. You do. <laughs> they're pretty yeah. unmistakable, right? They're unmistakable. <laughs> they have, they've got kind of a bulbous nose and a whole bunch of spikes on their back. 
their type of scales. It's a type of ganoid scale, we call it. What does that mean? So there's several different types of scales for fish. If you catch a, a sunfish, if you're out fishing and you catch a little sunfish, um, they have a type of scale called tenoid scales and they kind of flake off really easily. Paddlefish and sturgeon have very primitive scales called ganoid scales that are really tough and really leathery. And they've got a very specific type of scale that's unique only to just to sturgeon. And they're really sharp and they go along their back and they're called scoots. But they're real leathery feeling when you pick them up. And they will cut you if you're not careful, especially the babies are very sharp. Oh, does this make uh, catching them challenging? Yeah, we'd wear gloves. We'd have gloves. When we used to catch sturgeon, I worked on a sturgeon crew a long time ago. And yeah, your gloves would be shredded. And if you didn't have your gloves on, your hands would be shredded. So they made them easy to hang up in nets, but they they were not pleasant to hold on to. I tell you what, it's not hard to catch them in Animal Crossing. That's for sure. (laughs) You just... You just pop them right up. It's no big deal. Are there sturgeon? <laughs> just, are there sturgeon in Animal Crossing? There are. It's oh, in a no very, way. very specific place. It's where the rivers meet the ocean. Okay. Where there's a little like runoff right there. That checks out. You can catch sturgeon, and I know that because for some reason my game was bugged. I don't know okay. what was wrong with my game in particular. In my game. Every single time I approached where the river met the ocean in this one spot on my island, there was a sturgeon there every time, 100% of the time. No way. Well, I'm going to have to do this now. I had like 40 sturgeon. Yeah, well, I'm going to have like 40 (laughs) sturgeon at least. My kids would play that game all the time, and I'd be like, what are the animals crossing? And they're like, Mom, the animals aren't crossing anything. (laughs) But um, now they're going to be crossing to go get some sturgeon when I play Like, Go find me a sturgeon. (laughs) (laughs) Get me some sturgeon. Yeah, and then you put them in the aquarium. You could put them in the museum and then you get one in your aquarium swimming around it's real cute that was how i found out what a sturgeon is because i wasn't very familiar with them i found one in the game and at first i thought it was a gar i thought it was like a weird type of gar gar also awesome yeah is there is there any sort of like relation there they're not closely related but they're all primitive fish they're common ancestors of most of the fish that we see now gar have similar some similar traits um, one of the traits that they have is they've got a passageway in their esophagus down to their swim bladder. So their swim bladder, they can inflate and deflate to make them move up and down in the water column. And they can gulp air to make them expand their swim bladder. And they can like release air through their mouth, burp out air um, to help them sink. <laughs> I know. Burping. You don't think about fish burping. <laughs> no, you sure don't. But yeah, sturgeon can burp air if they want to go lower. They go to the surface some, but mostly they're down at the bottom of of rivers and lakes. So the bottom of their face is flat and they've got a mouth that like drops down out of nowhere and they can use that to vacuum up. Um, Most of them eat insects, but there's a couple species, the white sturgeon and the pallid sturgeon that will eat fish. Oh, like a little like a UFO that just tractor beams things up. They do. Well, they've got these little barbels that look kind of like a mustache, four of them that hang down in front of their mouth, and they drag that along the bottom. And their noses and their barbels are covered in what are called ampullae of Lorenzini. They're an electrosensory receptor, and sharks have those as well. Um, they do have some shared characteristics with sharks, but that's one of them that's pretty neat. Paddlefish, again, closely related, their big rostrum, their big paddle on the front of their face is covered with those ampullae of Lorenzini and also their gill flaps. So when they they swim around, they can sense like very small electrical impulses from like swarms of bugs in the water. 
If this is your first time ever listening to this podcast, what we do is we rate animals out of 10 in different categories, the first of which is effectiveness. What are the things built into this animal's body that let it do a good job of the things it's trying to do, whether it's trying to find food, not become food itself, tools it has built in uh, to let it do those things? What do you give sturgeon out of 10 for effectiveness? Well, sturgeon have, are about 20 million years old, and so I would say they get like a 12 out of 10. So they've been at it for a minute. They've been at it for <laughs> a minute. Yeah, for sure. You mentioned that they're eating little guys. They're eating mm-hmm. little things. But this is a big fish. How they get so big when eat little thing? How do, how do they do this? <laughs> <laughs> well, they just eat a lot of those things. So um, white sturgeon, which are the biggest species we have in North America, and they can get 1300 pounds so enormous and i was reading some accounts of them eating like whole adult salmon and it's not what it's not their favorite yeah because their mouth is just huge (laughs) you could fit like a couple basketballs in it um but you know there's a lot of things in nature that we think about like whale sharks or blue whales that filter feed and they eat just lots of little things it's more about quantity than I mean, I'm sure there's some quality aspects there too, but definitely quantity (laughs) and just being able to eat lots and lots, uh, but you have to eat all the time. So I think they're constantly cruising for food while they're moving around. That makes sense. You mentioned that their nose area, their face is covered in these little cells that let them detect signals around them and things like that. This is something we've talked about with other fish who live in freshwater systems where sometimes the water around them can be kind of murky and muddy. And, you know, this is like that Coca-Cola water can be really like it could look like chocolate milk in these really muddy freshwater systems. But having that extra sensory ability is really useful for navigating in situations like that, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so sturgeon, um, when you look at them, they have very reduced eyes is what we say. Their eyes are really small, same with paddlefish, because they're not seeing things. They're not looking around to see. I mean, they can sense light, but they're mostly doing their navigation and they're sensing with those electrosensory receptors. And so it helps them, they think, with navigation because they can make long distance migrations, even the ones that live in the rivers in the U.S. So shovelnose sturgeon and pallid sturgeon and certainly paddlefish, they, we have documented migrations of a thousand miles or more for them just cruising around rivers looking for, we don't always know why they're doing it. You know, it's hard to know sometimes if, if a fish is moving to spawn or if they're just, some fish just like to move around. You know, there's we'll see there's some that are homebodies. There's some that like to move around a little bit and there's some that really like, they are a rolling stone. They move, move right <laughs> along. I mean, just like people, right? Yeah, just like people. Some people are homebodies. Yeah, very individualistic. Have you noticed any sort of major like personality differences between sturgeon that you've like observed? I don't know. I'm not really around them enough. I worked on paddlefish for my dissertation. And there, I mean, I could notice personalities because I was tracking them. I had implanted transmitters in them so I could follow them around. And I and that's kind of how one of the ways that I know some move a lot and some don't like to move. And some of the ones that they'll just go camp out in the lake and they they just eat all the time and they're really big and fat because they don't they don't swim very much. They don't have current to fight against. But yeah, and other friends of my fish friends who are like other fish researchers note the same thing with other species. There'll be some that move around a lot and some that are just kind of homebodies that don't really go anywhere. Fair enough. Same. I mean, sometimes I don't feel like it. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Sometimes I ain't going nowhere. No, nope, so. <laughs> staying right here. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Do sturgeon have to worry about predators? Is there anything around that would like step to a sturgeon? 
Yes, there are. Maybe not a big one. So so like white sturgeon that can be 1,500 pounds. I mean, people obviously are the ultimate predator of things. Um, I think most of the 1,500 pound sturgeon do get released or 1,400, the big ones. But I worked at Oak Ridge National Lab before I was at Pacific Northwest National Lab. And we had ponds out back and we were rearing pallid sturgeon in them for an experiment. And we had raccoons raid our ponds. Oh, no. And ate all of our sturgeon. (gasps) The mighty raccoon, apex predator. I know. Yeah, but people are really a big predator. I mean, not just from, you know, they want to go fish them for sport, but also sturgeon are where we get caviar and paddlefish also. And caviar, I just looked up earlier today, but beluga caviar, those are the biggest species of sturgeon. They sell for $129 an ounce. That was like the Amazon. An ounce. ounce. So a tin of like eight ounce tin of caviar was, you know, $1,800 or whatever the math works out to there. Yeah, a lot. There can't be any food that tastes $1,800 no. good. <laughs> no. And clearly, yeah, clearly that number is wrong. I'm doing the math in my head. I'm like, that's not, that's not right. $1,000 $1, or something. No, it doesn't. I mean, I, I've tried caviar once and I mean, it tastes better than I thought, but worse than something I would want to eat. So I don't. <laughs> for the novelty, not, maybe. Yes, of it. for the novelty. Yeah, just to save it. Yeah, not my thing. Just as a flex, I guess, maybe. Yeah. Show that you have that kind of money to throw around. I guess, yeah. I don't know. Unclear to me why they why they would want to do that, but... Couldn't be me. No. <laughs> but it seems like once you get to, like, a certain size, especially when you're in these, like, freshwater bodies, right? You're like, who's around to challenge me, right? Like, who's gonna... For sure. But the challenge is getting to that big, right? Like, how, how long does it take for a sturgeon to get, like pretty good size well their first it just depends so you know when i used to work in wisconsin on like the mississippi river we'd see fish that were like their lake sturgeon and they were three or four years old and they were like four feet long so it didn't take them very long and when they're little they'll go sit in a deep hole and they'll just eat food and hang out in places that are hard for predators to get into and pray that no raccoon paws <laughs> right <laughs> yeah, no, start no raccoons reaching around into their little with their scuba spot. helmets and <laughs> <laughs> scuba raccoons um yeah but there's there i mean there's always things that can eat them i'm sure that you know walleye are a pretty big sport fish that we see largemouth bass or another big sport fish that and these fish like to eat everything catfish i'm sure they're like the greediest of all animals i'm sure they will <laughs> they would definitely eat a you know a small sturgeon but you know to be big enough their growth rate is like astronomical though so like paddlefish um we'd always go every year sample the little ones in one of the reservoirs and they would grow from like an inch to like seven inches in just a couple weeks. Wow. So, but what, by the time that you're seven inches or eight inches long from, you know, tip of your tail to tip of your snout, it's hard for things to get you in, to get your mouth around something like that as a fish, you know? So it can happen pretty quick. If you're a little fish, like you'll never outgrow it, but to be a sturgeon or a paddlefish, they can get through that gauntlet of small size fairly fast, but they also have, uh, pretty, they, they do invest a lot like of their own energy into reproduction. And so female paddlefish and sturgeon, they spawn like every other year or maybe every three or four years, just depending. And so putting all that energy into eggs means that your babies will have more to grow on. They'll be maybe able to better develop more quickly. Um, the males don't mature anywhere from like seven years old for smaller sturgeon like shovel nose sturgeon um all the way up to like 15 years old if they're you know a wow. big. it sounds like quite a quite a good bit of time yeah. between generations for them 
Yeah, it is. And that's, I mean, that's one of the problems. So sturgeon back in 2010 were named by the International Union of Conservation of Nature as the most endangered taxa. And 85% of sturgeon species, they were concerned about going extinct. Oh, wow. um, lake sturgeon were, are one of the fish species that are kind of on that okay list. I think shovelnose sturgeon are another one that's kind of on that list. But of the four you know, species that we have in freshwater in the U.S., two of them are endangered. And, you know, wow. some of them like lake sturgeon are protected in certain states. Paddlefish are protected in certain states, too. They're endangered in some states. They're commercially fished in others. That's part of, of the reason why we see so many problems with um, species declines is just that long reproduction time. Uh, even though it got them through the last 200 million years, you know, trying to get to make sure conditions are consistent and just right. And if the conditions aren't just right, they will just skip spawning. Oh, no. And then that's really going to put them behind because... It's going to yeah. take them a while to make up for that. Yeah, they reabsorb all of their eggs, you know, so they don't have as much of an energetic investment. But when they do finally spawn, they a lot of times will they won't spawn the next year. They'll spawn again in two years. So they'll go mm. through that whole cycle again, um, not just delaying a year, but then, you know, you put it off for two years or three years or four years. Yeah, I could I could see where challenges that might be minor to other types of fish could really tank things for the sturgeon, which is where Brenda Prachel, fish lawyer, comes in. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I object. <laughs> to put an end to fish crime. Yes, that's uh, right. No more. <laughs> he could be a fish vigilante. <laughs> hey there, friends. We're going to take a quick break to hear from a couple of the other shows on the Maximum Fun Network. When we get back, we are talking ingenuity and aesthetics for sturgeon. So stay with us. Oh, darling, why won't you accept my love? My dear, even though you are a duke, I could never love you. You, you borrowed a book from me and never returned it. <gasps> Save yourself from this terrible fate by listening to Reading Glasses. We'll help you get those borrowed books back and solve all your other reader problems. Reading Glasses, every Thursday on Maximum Fun. I'm Emily Heller. And I'm Lisa Hannawalt. And we're the hosts of Baby Geniuses. We've been doing our podcast for over 10 years. When we started, it was about trying to learn something new every episode. Now it's about us trying to actively get stupider. And it's working. <laughs> Hang out with us and you'll hear us chat about... Gardening. Horses. Various problems with our butts. And all the weird stuff that makes us horny. That's so weird, all that stuff. <laughs> Baby Geniuses, a show for adult idiots. Every other week on Maximum Fun. Baby Geniuses, we know everything. Baby Geniuses, tell us something we don't know. The next category that we rate animals on is ingenuity, which for us is behavior. These are things that they're actually doing, like ways that they solve problems or figure things out in their environment. What do you give Sturgeon out of 10 for ingenuity? I mean, I'd say they're probably like a 10, you know, anything that's that's able to live 200 million years and very, very small changes, but they've really, they're very well adapted to the environment that they're in. They don't have big giant eyes and live down at the bottoms of rivers where they couldn't see anyway. The cues that they have for spawning are when water flows increase in speed and amounts in, in the spring. So having all of those things together, yeah, they're, they've really figured out their niche in their environment and how to adapt to it. It sounds like they have to be pretty in tune with like the water around them. 
Yep, for sure. And you mentioned that, you know, a lot of the work that you do is with figuring out like what challenges the fish are facing with navigating waterways, especially around things like dams and like structures in the water that they might need to accommodate for it, right? So like, have you seen the fish adjusting at all to that? Or like things you have to consider like fish behavior, I guess? How do those two things meet? That's kind of a tricky one, you know, because these fish are so long lived, sturgeon can live in upwards of 100 years, some of the the big white sturgeon, even, you know, the smaller shovelnose sturgeon that we'll see in freshwater, they can live in, you know, 30 or 40 years. And so, you know, I'm only 44 years old. And so that's there's sturgeon out there that are probably older than me. There was a, <laughs> a paddlefish I sampled during my dissertation that we aged at like 68 years old. Goodness. So it's way it was older than my parents. It was like my grandparents age. So, you know, just thinking about that, it's it's hard to really get what those adaptations are on that kind of time scale. But I mean, we see, you know, species declines. We know that these fish are highly mobile. They do migrate um, some species, the ones that move between the freshwater and the ocean, do need to do that to complete their life cycle. So that's certainly a, you know problematic for them if there's a dam that's blocking what their spawning ground is. And part of that, you know, electrosensory perception they, they think is part of like how they navigate in the water. I'm going to get rid of my dog really quick. I'm sorry. There's a dog in the screen. I would like a quick mention of the dog. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So there's been a couple animals in here. This is Emery. He is my black lab. There is an orange kitty that was around. Dorito is his name. (laughs) Um, There's another beagle named Edith. And then a black cat somewhere that may surface if I don't shut the door. Um, his his name his given name at the shelter was Nebraska because we're from Nebraska. Like that was like Aww. the sign to get him. But then I was like, that's kind of a silly name for a cat, don't you think, kids? And they're like, no, that's a great name. And I'm like, how about we call him Husker? They're like, no. And so then I started calling him Tiny Husker Kitty, and now we call him THK. So he's just THK. <laughs> I love cat name lore. I know. I love when there's a story behind cat names. It's like those those songs in Lord of the Rings where they've got like three pages of songs (laughs) that they sing. I like pet names that you need like a briefer on. (laughs) (laughs) Let me get out the docket for it. Yeah. So I did want to mention the sturgeon that I have become acquainted with recently mm-hmm. in the Seattle Aquarium. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. are, let me see if I can look up what type of sturgeon they are, because it was really my first time seeing sturgeon like up close. Uh, they're in the underwater dome, which is my favorite part of the entire aquarium because mm-hmm. they like swim around over your head. And every time we're in the underwater dome without fail, there's always someone who points at the sturgeon and says, look, a shark. They always think they're sharks because they're the biggest fish in the underwater dome. And people see big fish and they think shark. Mm-hmm. Oh, Columbia is the that's her name. The white sturgeon. So the white sturgeon. Yes. Yes. Pencer transmontanus is the scientific name. Wow. Yep. They're found in the state of Washington. Um, they'll find them in California and Oregon, too, along that Pacific coast. Um, I think even up to Alaska, they might foray up that far. But yeah, they're, they're the biggest surgeon we have in, in North America. They're the ones that, you know, when I'm out in Washington State for work, when I run along the Columbia River, I'm like, 
I always think about seeing one of those giant sturgeon. It makes me kind of like, if I saw one, I would literally throw up. There's just no <laughs> two ways around it. Is that a joyful throw up or a... It would be, yeah, it would be totally joyful. <laughs> like, oh my God, I can't, I can't believe I'm in such amazing company. I don't know. It, yeah. I see videos all the time on the internet of people like encountering sturgeon and being sort of terrified by them because they have that sort of vibe of like a prehistoric sort of river monster. Yeah, for sure. Yep. And, you know, the first surgeon I ever saw, interestingly, it was right outside of a nuclear plant on the Missouri River in Nebraska, and it had two sets of pectoral fins, and pectoral fins are like their little arm fins. And it wasn't just like it was slit, it had like two little sets of musculature. Oh. But they're not supposed to be like that, right? (laughs) No, no. But they. There's all kinds of weird things you'll see in fish, you know, seeing mutations in fish that maybe their fins are a little bit different or their colors a little bit different. We we do see that fairly frequently and not, you know, I forget what the, the background rate we expect is something like 1% or 2%. And that's the only one that I ever saw that was like weird in that way. I mean, 1% is still like, if you see 100 fish, like one of them's likely to be kind of a weirdo, right? Like that's still a pretty high percentage. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, it really is. And maybe it's less than that. But yeah, it's not it's not common that we would see weird fish. So yeah. And you said it's not related to the nuclear plant. <laughs> well, <laughs> presumably. Well, you know, it was a lake sturgeon, which we almost never saw in the Missouri River. But uh, lake sturgeon usually will spawn in different sorts of areas than that. They sure could have spawned nearby, but usually we'd see them in, in more sort of backwater areas. Um, there might be some flow, but it would be not super fast flow, like where we caught that fish at. It That was not a place where you'd expect them to spawn, really. So maybe we caught mm. one that was on its way up somewhere to spawn because there was some very nice spawning habitat about 100 miles upstream of where we were. So that's possible. That's where it was headed. I definitely would have had one of those moments where I'm like, let me Google these real quick to see if that's what I they're did. supposed to look like. Like, can I check to make sure they're not just supposed to be like that? I know. I know. Well, it was, this would have been like 2002. And so we didn't have, Google was not like the Google of, I don't even know there was Google back then. I think I was using like, I don't know, InfoSeek or Netscape Navigator <laughs> or something. Certainly couldn't have just pulled out your phone and checked real quick. Oh, absolutely not. No, I didn't even have a cell phone at that point. And so I went home and I got into my Peterson's guide or maybe it's the Audubon guide of fishes. It didn't have tons of fish, but I'm like, here's what it is. And I, it was a green sturgeon, which it was not a green sturgeon, but it didn't have a lake sturgeon in there. But I was like, it was one of these guys, something like this. It was very exciting. But when I saw it, I felt kind of like I was going to throw up in a good way, in like the best way. <laughs> <laughs> Just throwing up with joy. It's, a, know, it's yes. a joyful uh, vomit. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Well, you know, since you would be so incredibly joyful to see one, let's talk aesthetics for the sturgeon. This is the final category we rate animals on. It's just how nice is this animal to look at? I could see anybody going either way on the sturgeon. I could see how they might have a divisive appearance. But what do you give sturgeon out of 10 for aesthetics? I'll give them a 10, but I will qualify that by saying my kids would say it's not conventionally attractive, but I think it's (laughs) very good looking. I give it like a 20 out of 10, but you know, I do recognize that it is not a conventional attractiveness. I like the sort of shoe face, though. Yeah. <laughs> it maybe it's it's triggering something in me that like I feel like it has an alligator like appearance, and like yeah, I love sure. alligators, and they're really mm-hmm. important to me. So like I feel like it's giving alligator a little bit. Well, they're I mean they're both prehistoric. Alligators are quite ancient as well. One of the more ancient animals we have, you know, certainly in the U.S. and across the world. So they would have vibed together maybe in those days. <laughs> that that maybe was a predator. 
You know, actually, now that we say that, one of my other fish researcher friends, one of his grad students uh, down in Mississippi got a picture of a crocodile or alligator, whatever was down there, eating a whole paddlefish, like a 35 pound paddlefish. <sighs> it's incredible. If you if you Google search crocodile or alligator eating paddlefish, you'll it will come up. And it's incredible. That probably fed that thing for weeks. Oh, probably. Probably did not have to eat again. No, or move. like a month after no, that. No, just sit on this hot, flat rock. <laughs> yeah, like, I'm set. <laughs> I'm good. This is good. The thing is happy. <laughs> but like also like the the row of the spikes on the sturgeon, with it being so sort of like centered and symmetrical, there's something very satisfying, I feel like, about the spikes on the sturgeon. Yeah. Well, you know, the alligator was eating a paddlefish and paddlefish don't have any spikes. So that's one of the big differences between them. Their faces, when you cut off the rostrum, look similar. Similar, but that's really where the big difference is, is the type of the type of skin that they have. And paddlefish have very almost feels like a wetsuit, kind of like neoprene mm. and a sturgeon feels real leathery. So that, that's the biggest difference between them. Maybe the paddlefish should invest in some spikes because maybe if they had some, they wouldn't have been getting eaten by a gator. That's for sure. Yeah, way too delicious. <laughs> you are too delicious to not be covered in spikes. You got to pick exactly. one. <laughs> I feel like for the sturgeon, like, they're also kind of chunky. Like, mm-hmm. they have this sort of, like, friendly shape. I don't know how else to describe it. Like, people think they look like sharks, but I think they look so just, like, chill. Yeah, they do. Yeah, they totally do. And, I mean, they don't they don't have any teeth. So, it's just a big fleshy mouth that drops down and, and eats things like a little vacuum. They can move kind of fast, actually, when they're on a spawning migration. They do move quite quickly. And they it was really cool. There was an article that came out probably 10 years ago now. But they looked at um, modeling of the river and the exact path. They had tracked a whole bunch of sturgeon and looked at its path. And they were able to pick the lowest energy migration route that would cost them the least amount of energy moving up there. Yeah. But in general, like they they look like they're just going to hang out and be on the couch and be your your buddy I do like the dedication to laziness like (laughs) that's why they say like give your hardest job to the laziest person because they will figure (laughs) out like the most efficient way to do it like I love that well, the first migration that a sturgeon makes is when they're really little and they're when they're born, they just get swept downstream and they don't do anything. They can't really move. They don't have any like musculature developed enough. And fish in general, when they develop, they'll have what's called a yolk sac attached. So you can envision like a chicken yolk um, in an egg. And they've got this like pouch on the bottom of their stomach that hangs out. And that's where that yolk sac is. And they'll absorb it. And that's oh. the only food that they have for just depending on the the temperature and the species, you know, days to weeks. And they'll finally absorb all of that. And then they'll be able to move around some, but some species of sturgeon they've shown um, can drift like 300 miles. Oh no. Help. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's another, you know, reason we, they have had some problems with dams and barriers in rivers is because they do, they don't just have the upstream migration, but as babies, they have a, a downstream migration as do things like salmon and lots of other fish that, that will move great distances. Those poor little baby fish, they're just floating down the river like, this is fine. (laughs) Hanging out, yeah. (laughs) yeah, They're like the little larval fish, the house is on fire window, now I'm picturing. (laughs) This This is is fine. fine. Drinking their cup of coffee. (laughs) Poor little babies, they're like, might as well, sure, take me away, I guess. I don't know where we're going. Brenda, for people who are listening, you're like, oh my gosh, I love this little dude. This is such a cool fish. Love the prehistoric vibes and maybe are feeling inspired to want to do something to give back, to help sturgeon. Is there any sort of advice that you could give to like the 
everyday person for like any way that they could help support the endangered sturgeon? Sure. One way is World Fish Migration Day. And so that's a obviously a global event. Um, next year, it'll be on May 25th. And a lot of times there'll be events that state you know, fishing game agencies or federal fishing game agencies will participate in. I know, you know, national labs might participate in them if they have uh, aquatics work too. And look to see if there's a World Fish Migration Day event. I know that they've done sturgeon releases. So a big part of sturgeon recovery and conservation is also uh, hatcheries and they'll do releases at boat ramps and they'll let people scoop in. They just, I live in Knoxville, Tennessee, and, and they'll have them on the Tennessee River on occasion where they'll go release some lake sturgeon. So that's something. Just being generally educated about your watersheds and what's there and how to be a good steward of your environment. And, you know, some of it might be things like, trying to plant plants that help absorb runoff or, you know, don't let runoff go into the street, into the storm drains that then go into the waterways and pollute them. It could be, you know, some things like going to help clean up a creek that picks up trash, because even if it's on a little creek, it will eventually flow into a big river. And in a lot of cases, those rivers will have sturgeon in them. There's the North American Sturgeon and Paddlefish Society too. And uh, that's mostly an, organi- an organization with researchers in it, but they do have a website with some with resources on it as well. If you're doing things like buying caviar, making sure that you're buying from a sustainable fishery, which is really hard to do. The packaging might be misleading. There's international standards that they have to meet on that packaging. You know, the fisheries that they come from have to meet certain standards as well. But really trying to do some research, if that is something that you partake in, um, making sure that those sort of things are ethically sourced as much as you can. And so they're not from poachers. They're not from, you know, something that's not sustainably fished, for instance. So a, a number of ways. Yeah. I wanted to back up for a second because you mentioned doing the releases of the mm-hmm. fish into the waterways. I've seen videos, and I may need your help for more context on this, mm-hmm. of people putting fish into like a giant cannon, basically. And do you know what I'm talking about? I do. <laughs> the fish cannon? <laughs> yeah, the, the salmon cannon. Um, so <laughs> that is actually, that was something that, that was a fish passage invention that a company came up with. And I guess originally those apparatuses were designed to transport like grapefruit across citrus farms. Hilarious. Yeah. They're like, just slam a... <laughs> just yep. grab a it's, salmon yep. in one of those things. It's a, it's a vacuum tube that will help move whatever you put in it. So like a salmon, for instance, through that tube. Actually, some of my coworkers at Pacific Northwest National Lab have helped test that salmon cannon. The the whoosh tube is what they called it. Um, Department (laughs) of Energy helped to give it some funding as well. Uh, But it's really really revolutionary because it can enable fish passage cheaply. I mean, that's one of the big barriers to fish passage because, I mean, we, we might think that dams have fish passage standardly, but that's not true at all. Like, Generally, unless a dam has hydropower on it, they don't have fish passage. And even the ones with hydropower, maybe 7 to 10% of them have fish passageways on them. But having something that's modular and easily and cheaply set up and taken down, like the whoosh system, like that's the salmon cannon, you know, enables a much more cost-effective way to be able to transport fish over a barrier, which is, can be a really big deal. Yeah, that made me think of a, a few months ago now, we went up to Ballard in Seattle and saw the locks there where they mm-hmm. have like a, you know, the lock system where they let boats in. But alongside the the locks was a salmon ladder, mm-hmm. which were like was like a series of like graduated steps up so that the salmon could jump up the ladder and get through to the other side. Mm-hmm. Is that like one of the fish passages that you're talking about? Yeah, that yeah, fish ladders are 
or what, you know, when I say fish passage, I should have, should have said that, but fish passage, fish ladder, same sort of thing. Fish can go up in little steps so they don't have to make one giant leap over a dam. They can make lots of little leaps to go over a dam. It's very fun to watch also. It, oh, it totally is. Totally is. <laughs> you could spend a day just watching them. Oh, you can. There was a crowd there. There was like maybe a couple dozen people watching the salmon ladder. And like every time one would try to jump up a step, it would jump up and everyone, if he didn't make it, everyone would go, ah. And then like <laughs> as soon as one made it up a step, everyone would like cheer. It was like, yeah. <laughs> That's the way it should Incredible be. Incredible <laughs> bonding moment with, with like 30 strangers. Yes. Just like, yeah. <laughs> You go, little fish. (laughs) (laughs) But really, like, anytime people can see fish, because it's not like a, I mean, birds can hide in trees or whatever, but it's not like a bird where you can just go outside and hear it or see it. Like, you have to really work. And a sturgeon in particular, you just don't see them very often. There's like a few places, you know, up in Wisconsin, they have, there's a big sturgeon fishery. And when those sturgeon spawn, they have people, they call them the sturgeon guard and they'll stand guard over the sturgeon so poachers don't take them, but they spawn right up along the shore. And you can see fish there, but like normally like fish are not, not an easy thing to just go spectate, you know, except for when they're jumping up the ladder. The sturgeon guard? Yeah, it's pretty cool. It (laughs) does. And they're just, yep, they're just volunteer citizens that, that go and just, just to make sure that poachers don't take those fish. That's like in Florida in some of the inland like springs and stuff like that where manatees swim up in the uh-huh. um, winter. They have people there that are like manatee. I don't remember the word that they used for them, but they basically they stand on the banks and they watch for manatees. And when they see manatees, they kind of like radio to each other to let them know where the manatees are. And when we were there in the spring, we were tubing down a spring run and lots of people were tubing and swimming and all sorts of stuff. And there were these volunteers. I don't know if they were volunteers or employees. I don't know what their relationship to the park was. It was at a state park where they would kayak down the spring run over the manatee. So the Mm -hmm. manatee would be swimming and grazing on the bottom and there'd be staff up with one of those high visibility vests and they would just like kayak right above the manatee and make sure people weren't harassing them, right? Like make sure people weren't, you're not allowed to touch them or anything. They're protected. Mm -hmm. And so they would like basically just, they'd be right alongside the manatee, making sure they get down the spring run safely. And uh, it was really, really cool. We got to, we were going down the spring run and a manatee swam under us. Like we didn't do anything. Like we weren't trying to like attract it or anything. It just swam under us. And there was a a staff person like escorting the manatee safely down the (laughs) spring run. (laughs) That's awesome. That sounds like a great job for a day. What a dream job. Doesn't that sound amazing? (laughs) It does sound pretty amazing. Well, Brenda, as we're wrapping up for today, is there anywhere that you would like to direct people? Like, is there any like projects that you're working on right now that you want people to know about or places you want people to find you like on social media or wherever, like where you want to like leave people to go next after this? Yeah, I mean, you can see all the cool work that we're doing through Department of Energy and specifically at Pacific Northwest National Lab. We do a lot of work with fish and fish passage and hydropower um, including white sturgeon and including this, the salmon cannon, as you called it. And check out our work, pnnl.gov, I think it is. And there's amazing, amazing things that we do at the National Labs. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. It's been a delight. Thank you for teaching all of us about sturgeon today. I've had so much fun. Thank you, Brenda. We will talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Thanks.
Thank you all so much for listening. I hope that sturgeons have grown to adulthood and migrated right into your heart. If you liked what you heard today, I hope you leave behind some kind words for us in a review on your podcast app of choice. If you'd like to hang out with us online, we're on Facebook, Instagram, Discord, and TikTok. Links to everything will be in the episode description. You can send me an email at ellen at justthezooofus.com if you have a cool animal you'd like to hear us talk about on the show. We'd like to thank Maximum Fun for having us on their network alongside their other wonderful wonderful shows like the ones that you heard promos for here today. You can check those out and learn more about the network and how you can be a part of supporting our show over at MaximumFun.org. Finally, we would like to thank Louis Zong for our theme music. That's all for today. We'll see you next week. Thanks. Bye. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.